So, you know, one of the very first things is an honest, open discussion among co-founders regarding that allocation of equity. I'm Alex Simos, the VP of our go-to-market center of excellence here at Edison Partners. We invest in companies with revenues between $10 million and $30 million in fintech, healthcare IT, and enterprise software sectors. We offer a unique combination of growth capital and our Edison Edge platform, which consists of our operating centers of excellence, spanning sales and marketing, finance, product and tech, and leadership. Our Edison Director Network is made up of more than 150 active members with deep expertise running growth stage companies. And our ongoing executive education program is customized to the needs of our CEOs and their growing companies and leadership teams. There are so many legal aspects of entrepreneurship, and it's vital that CEOs understand them early in their company's journey. Should you set your company up as an LLC or a corporation, the ins and outs of capital formation, tax implications, and so much more. We'll cover everything you need to know right here. Thank you, Alex and Edison Partners, for helping us create this Entrepreneur's Toolkit series. Very excited about our special guest today and the focus on the topic of legal issues that early stage entrepreneurs face. I'm here with my friend and special guest, Dave Soren. He's the partner and chair of the VC and Emerging Growth Companies Practice at McCarter English. Dave, great to see you. Good to see you too as well, Aaron. Thanks a lot. So let's get right into some of the common issues that entrepreneurs face in the early stage of, of the legal implications of forming a business. Starting most often, I think one of the questions that come up is LLC versus C-Corp, Delaware C-Corp, S-Corp. What's your recommendation on company formation and some of the issues that you see arise commonly? Almost, almost invariably, the decision is to do a C-Corp, probably in Delaware, for any company uh, that is likely to pursue outside capital, and certainly for any company that is a technology or technology-oriented company for two primary reasons. Uh, Delaware C-Corp, in general, is uh, the the form of enterprise preferred by institutional investors, certainly venture investors, uh, and even for those companies that uh, might decide to form as an LLC and, and convert later, there is a rationale that suggests forming as a C-Corp from the get-go if the underlying company would qualify uh, for the qualified small business stock tax exclusion. Um, this is a very significant tax benefit uh, that has been made part of the federal tax policy to encourage entrepreneurship. Uh, it allows owners of common or preferred stock of a C-Corp uh, that qualifies as a qualified small business to have a massive exclusion from federal income tax um, on the gain of sale of that stock, uh, provided the owner has held the stock for five years or more. And so when you think about the period of time from ideation to monetization, um, five years is, is a pretty significant holding period. And to avoid the risk of um, not qualifying, uh, it makes sense to form as a C-Corp early on. What if you start a business where you're not sure whether or not you'll raise outside capital? Do you still recommend the same path? 
If you're not sure, um, there are two tacks to take. One is start as a C-Corp anyway, if you might otherwise uh, be eligible for the QSBS, Qualified Small Business Stock Tax Exclusion. Again, uh, you, you don't get that holding period started until you own C-Corp stock. Um, so if you start as an LLC and convert later, uh, any time spent holding the LLC unit or membership interest won't count toward the five-year holding period. So that certainly should be a consideration whether you're going to be raising capital or not. Um, but otherwise, starting out as an LLC, other than the issue of the holding period, uh, it, it's it's not uh, unreasonable to start out as an LLC if the tax benefits associated with being a pass-through outweigh uh, the risk of not meeting the five-year holding mm -hmm. period. Uh, one cautionary tale, uh, starting out as an S-corp uh, and then converting later to a C-corp uh, will not cause the stock to be QSBS eligible uh, because the stock that's issued while the company's an S-corp uh, doesn't qualify for QSBS. So um, it probably behooves somebody who wants to start out as a tax pass-through uh, to be an LLC rather than an S corp, if there's going to be a subsequent conversion. Later. I'm realizing that we we should quickly touch on the key differences between those three structures. Sure. So the benefit of all three structures is that the owners have limited liability. They are not liable, uh, generally speaking, for the obligations of the business. So when an entrepreneur founds a business, uh, this gives them an opportunity to protect their personal assets from the obligations of the business. Now, there are requirements associated with that that uh, I don't think we have to go through here, but you know, suffice it to say it's important to recognize the differentiation between the individual and the business. Uh, and there are some obligations of a business that um, a, a founder uh, or original owner can be held liable for despite uh, that separateness associated with LLCs. S-Corps and C-Corps. The other big issue is LLCs and S-Corps are what we call tax pass-through entities. The entities are not taxable persons in their own right. Whatever uh, items of income and loss there are will flow through the enterprise to the owners who will then have those items of income or loss on their personal tax returns. By contrast, an, a C-Corp is a separate taxable entity. Uh, and so if it has income, it will be taxable at the corporate rates. If it has losses, um, those losses can be carried over uh, uh, for finite amounts of time into the future to offset future income. Um, so very big difference in the early times when most companies are operating at a loss, uh, 
some owners believe that uh, they will benefit, and some, in fact, do benefit from having those tax losses uh, available to them personally to offset other forms of income. Uh, and that's when you are weighing uh, whatever that benefit is uh, against whatever the risk is of not meeting the five-year holding period if your company is a qualified small business. Excellent. So let's move on to, we, you know, often early stage companies are looking for early employees or co-founders. What's the appropriate structure for that if it's a co-founder agreement or an employee agreement? And then some of the most important elements inside those agreements that you sometimes I'm curious if you see them omitted mistakenly and people have to go back and then it becomes a, you know, a new and fun negotiation. Indeed. Look, so I, I think the first issue is for co-founders themselves. You know, anytime there's more than one founder, uh, we do advise that those founders uh, think carefully first about the allocation of that initial equity. Um, you know, one of the things that you hear often uh, among founders in those kumbaya moments is equality. Um, you know, let's just share the equity equally uh, because we're all in this together. And while equality is sometimes the right answer, uh, I found that it is rarely the right answer. Uh, founders bring different skill sets, different levels of commitment, uh, different levels of importance uh, to the achievement of the goals of the organization. So, you know, one of the very first things is an honest, open discussion among co-founders regarding that allocation of equity. You know, after that, I also think it's really important uh, to plan for the future. Uh, and in doing that, uh, I think it's important to set vesting uh, on that initial equity. Uh, you know, when everyone gets started and everybody is uh, uh, thinking that they're putting the oars in the water and rowing in the same direction, uh, Co-owners don't often like to think about issues like, well, what if somebody leaves? What if somebody doesn't work out? Uh, and so we think it's important to put vesting. Basically, it's a risk of forfeiture and a repurchase option uh, for the company if somebody leaves prior to being vested. And that unvested portion, uh, what happens to that? Uh, so, you know, if somebody leaves the company, you don't want them going off with all of the equity that might have been granted at the beginning. They haven't stayed long enough to achieve the goals uh, and put in the time that's necessary. And you have to realize that you're going to have to replace that skill set of the departing co-founder. When you do that, that invariably involves another equity allocation. And so if you don't have an ability to get back the unvested portion, the remaining founder or founders are going to suffer unnecessary and added dilution uh, if they haven't, if they don't have a mechanism to get unvested equity back. And so we think that's a really important consideration. Uh, the vesting periods uh, vary, uh, often depending upon whatever the current state of the market is. Today, it's usually four-year vesting. Uh, nothing vests until the first anniversary of the date of grant, often then 25% of that equity will vest. And normally, the remaining uh, equity will vest pro rata monthly over the next 36 months. 
basically a four year vesting period. Um, and it's really important that that co-founders think about this, but I can almost guarantee you that if you haven't thought about it when you when you first uh, issued that founder's equity, that an institutional investor like a venture fund will impose it. And uh, how much of a period of time they're going to impose uh, also varies. Um, and, and usually uh, it'll be that same kind of four-year period unless the company at the time of the, the venture financing uh, has achieved uh, you know, a certain level of success, certain milestones have been met, in which case that remaining vesting period uh, likely to be imposed by an investor could very well be shorter than that, shorter than what is currently standard. You find in those uh, first fundraisings that regardless of whether a vesting schedule is put in place, one is imposed, or uh, it sounds like especially when there isn't one, of course, yes. but if there is, is there sometimes more flexibility because you know the, the co-founders are more thoughtful about vesting into the entity? Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Aaron. Uh, in the absence of the founders imposing one on their own, uh, you can almost be guaranteed that uh, the venture investors will impose one. Uh, what the length of that period will be for the vesting and how much is subject to vesting uh, does vary. Uh, the earlier the company is when it gets the financing, uh, the longer the vesting schedule is likely to be. Uh, and the uh, fewer shares that are deemed to be vested up front uh, the as companies evolve and develop, that becomes a point of negotiation uh, with, with an investor in terms of just how many of the shares will be subject to vesting and what that vesting period will be. The more milestones that have been met, the further along the company is, the, the shorter that vesting schedule imposed by the venture capitalists will be. Uh, and, you know, frankly, uh, as I said, in the absence of a vesting schedule, you can be sure that one will be imposed. Um, and even if the founders have imposed a vesting schedule, the investors may have you know, some of their own ideas. Again, that'll be based upon how far along the company is, milestones that have been met, how much effort and time has already been put in by the founders. So what are some common issues? You know, we just talked about one on, on investing. What are other issues you see come up that uh, have legal implications uh, in the, in, during that first fundraise and, and potentially some common mistakes. You know, I, I think the the equity allocation is an important consideration. The vesting schedule is an important consideration. Uh, one of the areas that you almost always will uh, find can be a point of concern as well is how the company has uh, protected the uh, intellectual property, the confidential information of the company, you know, using invention assignment forms, confidentiality, non-use, non-solicitation type agreements. It is vitally important that the chain of title to that intellectual property and that confidential information be clear and protected. Uh, you want an unbroken chain. So critical that at the time of formation, the the founders assign to the company uh, any intellectual property or confidential information that was developed 
prior uh, to formation. Uh, and as new people come in, when you onboard employees, and even when you engage independent consultants, you want to make sure that you have the right protective mechanisms in place. Uh, and be aware that the, the law is different uh, with, as, uh, as it relates to employees versus independent contractors or consultants. Uh, it's much easier for a company effectively to claim ownership and to assert its ownership over uh, intellectual property developed by employees. Uh, in the absence of an appropriate agreement uh, with a consultant, however, commonly referred to work made for hire arrangement, uh, the consultant owns and the company merely has a non-exclusive right to use. Again, that's in the absence of an appropriate agreement with the consulting firm or the independent contractor that makes it clear that this is a work for hire uh, and therefore that the company owns uh, what is developed by that independent contractor or consultant. Uh, that, that's a very important issue. You want to make sure that uh, th that appropriate documentation is done. One of the other things that uh, is, is a point of concern is any time uh, one of the stockholders, whether it's founders or subsequent employees who take pursuant to vesting, there's an important consideration, again, it's tax-related, called a Section 83B election. In the absence of that election, there can be um, significant tax liability uh, as vesting occurs, because under the federal tax rules, uh, the owner of that equity isn't deemed to be the owner for tax purposes until the vesting or the repurchase option or the risk of forfeiture uh, either is, is reached or lapses. Uh, but when you take stock pursuant to vesting, Crisco forfeiture or repurchase option, if you file a document called a Section 83B election, uh, you don't that risk. All of the stock is deemed to be owned for tax purposes at the time of grant when that election is made. And therefore, you're not looking at potentially higher tax liability in the future as the events occur when the fair market value of that equity is likely to be significantly higher. So 83B election, I think, is, is very important. Uh, protection of intellectual property, uh, employee and consultant invention assignments, and of course, vesting. Uh, in, in addition to that, as you're bringing folks in who you are providing equity incentives to, you want to protect against uh, minority owners uh, effectively being able to have a veto power over certain corporate actions. And so when you grant equity uh, to employees, et cetera, you might consider having a right of first refusal to acquire the equity, putting limitations on transfer, uh, and having something called a drag-along right, where if a majority of the common holders or and or a majority of the board or a majority of preferred holders, when you get into that round of, of financing, the minority holders agree to be dragged along uh, if the, the majority votes in those cases uh, approve and desire a sale of the company.
I always thought that um, that phrasing, you know, hopefully they're not dragged as much as walking, you know, behind and pulled alongside. But regardless, uh, obviously important legal implications there. So I also hear come up um, as we're, we're running on uh, in on time. But I've had entrepreneurs ask me, ask me frequently, you know, would you consider signing an NDA before looking at a business plan or a pitch deck? And obviously this is an audience thinking about venture capital. Um, I'd love from your perspective, what do you advise folks about that? Uh, most venture capitalists will not sign an NDA. You know, they are in the business of seeing hundreds, if not thousands of opportunities a year. Uh, they are in the business of making investments uh, and they don't want to have control contractual obligations like an NDA that might put them in a position of inadvertently uh, being accused of violating someone's rights simply because they looked at a pitch deck. Um, and, and so I think it's incumbent upon most founders to KYI, know your investor before you start sharing information and understand that when you're sharing information with Venture capitalists, uh, the vast majority of whom are highly reputable and not in the business of stealing founders' ideas, um, you won't get an NDA, and you're better off not asking for one. Uh, I think you know, even asking for an NDA from uh, a venture capital fund uh, demonstrates kind of a lack of knowledge of uh, how. Uh, venture investors meet companies, how they invest, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, know who you're dealing with, uh, know that you're dealing with respectable, uh, highly reputable people, uh, and uh, don't, don't expect an NDA. Last question, Dave. Um, most of these companies are, are software companies of some kind. Any uh, terms and conditions, privacy policy updates, other legal ramifications that you think um, they should keep in mind that, again, early stage companies tend to ignore? Yeah, that's that's a great question. States attorneys general uh, are serious about companies having privacy policies uh, on their websites. So privacy policy and T's and C's or, or terms and conditions are essential parts of the, uh, you know, effectively the starter kit of documents that uh, uh, companies need to protect themselves and uh, uh, to ensure that the customers with whom they are dealing uh, know what the what the effectively the agreement is between the provider, the company, and uh, and the recipient. So uh, NDAs, uh, T's and sorry, uh, privacy policies and T's and C's, critical part of building your infrastructure. So it is important that that be done. And as far as finding a the, the right legal expert, there are plethora of options, certainly in the New Jersey region. There's the Upwork option, the LegalZoom option. I've, I think I've used all of the options. I've been thrilled with your advice and other professional legal advice. But in the early stages, I, I have made some of the mistakes you've talked about. I have, but I've needed to be scrappy and, and make the cash go a little further. Um, it, we, I made some mistakes. So do, do you, do, what's your recommendation on the early stage companies? Is it okay to be a little scrappy and use your uncle or use online tools, or is it just a recipe for disaster? It's a great question. Uh, I would say uh, beware, right? You know, scrappiness is important, uh, but there are risks associated with that. 
certainly some of the online programs are helpful, but they are not a substitute for legal advice. Uh, my advice is partner with the right people, whether it's legal, accounting, finance, uh, et cetera, uh, and the right people who understand the market have programs in place uh, for those very early stage companies. Uh, we, we certainly do, uh, as do many of, of the law firms that really participate in, in this part of the market. Uh, so, you know, I said earlier, KYI, right? Know your investor, every founder, KYC, know your, know your customer, um, you know, know your other partners as well. Uh, don't work with dabblers, you know, that uncle, uh, work with people who do this all the time. I think that's critical. There are a lot of very good sources of legal advice available. Um, so step one is work with experts. Step two, I think, and this goes to your scrappiness question, go with uh, experts who also provide some kind of compelling value proposition. And that's not just billing rates, obviously, or deferrals of, of legal fees and, until there's a financing. Uh, but that includes people who are you know, really involved in the ecosystem, who know not only the market and the trends and the industry focus, but, but also know the investor community. So compelling value, value proposition, I think, is step two. And step three, which not a lot of people talk about, is uh, the, the concept of chemistry. You, you, know, you certainly don't have to work with, nor, nor should you, you, your best friend, uh, but you know, make sure you're working with someone that you are comfortable uh, asking questions. No, no question is naive, especially for first-time founders, um, and, and someone that is going to be pragmatic and responsive, and you're going to enjoy working with. Uh, so I, I think the best advice is, you know, Follow those three suggestions, uh, and you'll end up with, I believe, a far more uh, productive and valuable relationship. Um, and, you know, documents are one thing. You can get documents anywhere. What you can't get anywhere is that kind of experience and proactivity participation in your business. I think that's a great place to end. I very much appreciate you sharing your expertise with us today. And I want to thank all of you watching. Stay tuned for other episodes. Make sure you check out the other episodes of the Entrepreneur's Toolkit with Edison Partners. We have uh, secrets on, on startup branding and PR, accounting uh, and finance best practices. And obviously today we touched on some very, very significant and important legal matters. So Dave, great to see you. And thanks again for joining us. It is absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for what you provide to this ecosystem, Aaron and team. Thanks for listening. Let us know your favorite takeaways on social media at We Are Tech United. Stay tuned. More of Tech United on Tap next.